This morning, please take out the word of God and turn to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, we'll conclude our text there with verses 22 through 27 this morning. While you're turning there, I'd like to just take just a moment to thank you as a church body and commend you for um, the way that you have stepped up and served and loved and uh, been there for the Stivers family. Uh, these past few days, you, you guys, most of you know, if not all of you know, that Mr. Junior Stivers passed away earlier this week and uh, uh, is home with the Lord now, uh, receiving the inheritance that, that he received uh, through uh, the grace, that the faith that he received by grace and uh, his salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, Josh was in Ecuador this week and, and I was away on vacation. And, and uh, I can tell you from my correspondence with Josh that it disturbed him greatly that he was not able to be here, not because he didn't think things were going to get done, but because he loves the family so much and because he loves the church so much. And he sees this as a serious calling in his life. And he wanted to be here desperately. And, and I wanted to be here desperately. And, and yet, uh, when I got back Friday and observed the way that you were loving on the family and taking care of the family and praying over the family and serving the family, um, it was very commendable. And uh, I was very proud of you as one of your pastors and I'm very proud to be a part of this church. And I want to thank you. And I know they appreciate all that you have done and will continue to do uh, for them in these next few days. I encourage you to continue to pray for them as they will certainly need it. And uh, But thank you for, for all that you did there. I also want to thank you for your inquiries about my vacation. I don't know how many of you are on Facebook. Uh, but uh, for our kids' sake, we posted a few pictures on Facebook as we went along the way. And uh, somebody told me, it didn't look like you did a whole lot. And uh, Miss Linda asked me a while ago if, if we had a good time, if, if we had good weather. I said it rained every day. Well, that didn't bother us because we didn't have any kids with us and we were not anxious to go play in the surf. <laughs> and so uh, we actually got to do some things uh, on vacation that you're supposed to do, which is rest. And uh, one of the unique things that I had the opportunity to do, and those of you who are here who've done any seminary, uh, Jason, you'll you'll be able to appreciate this both from being a, a seminarian and a librarian, was uh, we don't always get to read. Mike, I don't know if you get to read. And Marcus, I don't know if you get to read things that you just want to read. It seems like we're always reading things that we, we need to read, we have to read. And, and I'm not saying I don't enjoy reading the Word of God. Let me say that right up front. But I chose, I've been wanting to read something that was just something different. And uh, so I chose on this trip to get an autobiography of, of Ronald Reagan. I don't know why. Uh, it, I just wanted to read an autobiography of, of Ronald Reagan. And I've been wanting to do that for a while. And so I got, a, got it on ebook. And so we spent a large portion of our time either sitting in the beach or sitting in the room reading. And so if you're looking, go to Facebook and looking for any fun pictures of our vacation. You won't find them there. We're reading. That's, that's about what we're doing. One of the unique things about reading about Ronald Reagan, and I understand we all have our personal thoughts and beliefs and ideologies and political uh, leanings and tendencies. Uh, but one of the things about him that, that struck me was just how his upbringing informed his leadership style and the things that he did uh, when he got older. He was raised by, by his parents in northern Illinois. His dad was a skeptic uh, by his own, his own uh, testimony, and his mom was an optimist. And so he had a blending of of ways that he was being raised and uh, it detailed his his rise from a football star and a lifeguard to being a movie star and you guys know Ronald Reagan in the 30s and 40s and 50s was quite the movie star and and then uh, he transformed from being a movie star to being a politician and uh, from being a politician he became the governor of of California and then in 1980 was was elected president of the United States served two terms through 1988 and had uh, most historians would consider him one of the greatest presidents and just uh, not only for the things that he was enabled, able to enact, but just the way that he communicated, the way that he was able to get things done, the way that he was able to move people and get people to respond. And and um, and so that that intrigued me as I was I was looking through that, you know, he's recognized for improving economic policies and making us a, a power from from a domestic policy and an international policy and diplomacy leader. Uh, he, he made all those kind of things. He was also known for his hands-off leadership style. Uh, I'm more of a micromanager. I feel more comfortable if I've got my hands on something. 
Uh, Reagan would not have been described that way. He would have been described as somebody who was hands off. He trusted his advisors. He trusted his chief of staff and his staff. He trusted his cabinet. He trusted those people who were closest to him, his party leaders and so forth. And so uh, he was hands off until he needed to be hands on. And then if you look back at Ronald Reagan, I haven't finished the book yet, but I know enough from from having lived through it um, when he was president. When he put his hands on something, he steered the ship hard. And he said in his autobiography that the reason he did that was because he had a firm conviction to his ideology. And then whenever the time came to make a critical decision or a critical um, move, he always was guided by what his mom and his dad taught him and the ideology that they formed in him. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, He told a story in his book about going to Geneva for his first ever face-to-face meeting with Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the prime minister of the Soviet Union. And he said, you know, I wanted to make a statement. I was convinced that he was a good man. I was convinced that, that, that he was different than some of the Soviet leaders that came before him. And you guys all know that we were engaged in the arms race at that time. And I mean, the threat of nuclear war was very real in the 80s. And so we, we were going through all of that. And they came to this first face-to-face meeting in Geneva. And he said that he wanted to get Gorbachev alone. He was convinced that if they got alone, face to face, just the two of them, that they could come to some kind of a a man to man, masculine agreement that would set the tone and the foundation for the rest of their time together. And so he had his staff go down uh, the morning of the meeting into a boathouse. It was in Geneva. It was cold. and, And they built a fire down there. And during a break, he just went over, walked over, just sort of kind of casually walked, as, as casually as the president of the United States can do anything, right? He walked over to Mr. Gorbachev and said, would you like to step outside and get some fresh air? And then he purposely walked Mr. Gorbachev down the hill to this boathouse where it was just the two of them and their interpreters. And he said that, that after that meeting, he was convinced that Mr. Gorbachev and he saw more eye to eye than they did any other way. And that they could come to some resolution on the arms agreement and the things that needed to take place. But he was convinced his ideology drove him to make that decision to leave everybody else alone at the summit and go down and do that. Another moment that you probably know a little bit more uh, is a little bit more popular. I think it was 1987. He was at the Brandenburg Gate in in Berlin and right at the Berlin Wall. And he was given a speech and the the West German chancellor was there and the West German uh, president was there and. And everybody in the world was watching. And he gave this speech. And in there, there was one line that I bet every one of you uh, who were alive at that time can say it. He said, Mr. Gorbachev, take down this wall or tear down this wall. Do you know that, that his speechwriters and almost no one on his staff wanted him to say that? His speechwriter said, you don't need to go that far. You're drawing a line in the sand. That is too dogmatic. You don't need to say that. Please, Mr. President, take that out. And he didn't know what he was going to do when he stood up. But now you can go back and Google it when you get home today on YouTube. He said, uh, Mr. Gorbachev, take down this wall. And almost two years later, the Berlin Wall came tumbling down. And even at his own presidential library in California, even today, they have a piece of that wall on the Berlin Wall. On display there in his presidential library. What led him to do that? When everybody else said, don't do that, Mr. President, you don't need to do that. That's unnecessary. He did it because of his ideology. Because he had a core belief that that needed to be done. And he was willing to say and do what needed to be done to get that to take place. Brothers and sisters, we have something greater than an ideology to look to. We have a person. We have God the Father, the creator and sustainer of all the world. We have the person of Jesus Christ who came as a man and in the flesh gave himself up for us to die for us and take the wrath of God upon himself so that we could have a relationship with God the Father. And furthermore, we have this word, which is the word of God. We all call it the word of God, but it's the actual word of God. And we don't need a personal ideology to guide us. What we need is the person of God, the work of Christ, and the Word of God in our lives to be able to guide us. This is our ideology. And there's nothing, and not even our circumstances, and this is where I want to go this morning, not even our circumstances, not even our trials, not even our our, our situations in life, should change who and what we cling to. Paul told Timothy in writing to him, we have it recorded in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. 
talking about affliction, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed in, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed unto him until that day. We can have faith in the person who wrote this book. We can have faith in Jesus Christ and God and what he has led us to do. As we come to today's passage in, at the end of Exodus chapter 15, we find that the people of Israel have a little bit of a lapse. They have a lapse in their remembrance. They have a lapse in their commitment. We all know chapter 14. We talked about it last week just by way of review. Many of you were in Ecuador. Chapter 14, which Josh called a couple of weeks ago. Here they are at the sea. The sea in front of them. The Israel army behind them. But God's in control. Amen. God parts the waters. They pass on dry land. The Israelites get to the other side. God causes the waters to crash down on the Egyptians. And all of a sudden, the people of Israel are delivered just as God had promised. We get to chapter 15 last week. We study in verses 1 through 21 the song of Moses. It was a song of worship. It was a song of commemoration. It reveals God's ability to rescue and to protect and to establish. Last week we talked about four aspects of worship. We talked about worship being impulsive. We talked about it being one of those things that uh, whenever God does something just supernatural or unusual or amazing, that a natural response of the believer ought to be just impulsive worship. Just an amazing recognition of what God has done, followed by a, an intentional way and method of worshiping Him, of singing to Him, of praising Him. We talked about worship being imperial last week. And we saw in the text, in verses 1 through 21, the people of Israel, while they were on the seashore, they were actually, you got to get the image right, they're on the seashore and they're looking out over the Red Sea and they're seeing chariots floating in the water. And they're seeing Israeli soldiers lying face down there and they're, and they're recognizing, listen, a friend didn't cause that to happen. Your good buddy didn't cause the waters to stand up on heap and to crash down on the Egyptians. That is Lord God Almighty who did that. And so, in response to that kind of, of deliverance, Israel's response was, was mighty and it was large and it was imperial. It used phrases like highly exalted and greatness of your excellence and majestic three times. In their song, they wrote, Who is like you? They sang, Who is like you, O God? Who is like you? Worship is not only supposed to be imperial, but it's supposed to be intentional. God's deliverance of Israel was not generic. It wasn't just a little thing that they did. God specifically led them out of, out of Egypt. We know how God dealt with Pharaoh through Moses. And over and over and over again, how he went back and forth. And we know about the ten plagues. And we know about them leaving Egypt. And then we know about the Red Sea account. And God used intentional methods to deliver Israel. Therefore, Israel needed to use intentional worship to praise Him. And they did. We talked about worship not only being impulsive, imperial, and intentional. But as we get ready to look at today's verses, verses 22 through 27, we need to understand that Israel's worship was anticipatory. Anticipatory, meaning that they looked at what God had done and they knew the covenantal promises that God had laid before them. And with anticipation and with prediction, they looked ahead to when God would defeat their enemies. He even named them by name. Four countries he named by name, if you'll remember. And God would defeat their enemies and he would establish for them a land that they would move into and claim as their own. The covenantal kingdom. It's because of that worship. It's because of that, that tone at the end of the worship song last week. It's because of that tone that they were looking ahead and they were so excited and anxious and anticipating that makes me scratch my head a little bit when we get to today's passage. Verses 23 through 27. Because all of a sudden, this Israel that was so sure, this Israel that was so confident, this Israel that was so worshipful becomes doubtful. Becomes confused, if you will. And here they are turning away from the seashore to claim the promises that they were so sure about. When they should have been keeping on. When they should have been keeping the faith. When their hope should have been at its highest. All of a sudden we see where they reach a test and everything just sort of comes to a halt. And Israel falls into doubt when their faith should have been the greatest. I want to encourage you, if you will, to take the Word of God in your hands and stand with me this morning. 
As we read together God's holy word, Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. If you're ready for God's word this morning, please say amen. Amen. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. And therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And and then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. And there he made for them a statute and a regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I... There's that word, Lord, Yahweh, am your healer. And then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would enable us to see uh, the intention of, of, of what you meant in this word. Father, I pray that you'll enable us to see uh, the dangers of not recognizing the value of testing. I pray that you'll help us to recognize the, the need to not only see you as our deliverer, but to see you as our dependent. And God, I pray that you'll allow us to see and recognize our dependence on you in all matters of life, whether things are going good or things are going bad. Father, I, I ask that if there would be one here this morning who does not know you, has never trusted in you, who does not believe in you, has never surrendered to you, God, I pray that you would work in their life today through Your Word, to help them come to the realization that apart from You, they are indeed nothing. I pray that Your will will be done in all this, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Three brief points about our message today. And if you want to amen the word brief, you're certainly welcome to do that today. Three points I want to share from this text. Number one, We cannot live off past victories. We cannot live off past victories. Set the scene in your mind, if you will. As soon as this victory song was over, here they are. They're standing on the seashore. They're seeing the calamity. They're seeing the the awesome wonder and works of God displayed before them on the seashore. They immediately turn around. And listen to me, they didn't immediately turn around into... The promise that they didn't immediately turn around to that land flowing with milk and honey. They turned around to something called the wilderness of Shur. Okay? To, to a desert land. To a desolate place. They were fresh out of their glorious deliverance. They had just sung, last week I talked about this being their natal song, their birth song as a nation, or their emancipation song where they had been set free. They immediately turned from this and they faced the wilderness. And not so much in, in my translation... But in another translation of of the Scripture I read this week, and you may have it in your Bible, much of the language that appears in that translation appears that Moses had to implore, or he had to pride, or he had to encourage the people to leave. And I can see where that might happen. Who would want to leave? When God's doing great things, who wants to leave? Right? When you look down and you see what God has just done on your behalf, the promises that have been fulfilled, and you see how mighty and how great God is, there's a part of you that just wants to stay there forever. There's a part of you that just wants to ride that mountaintop and stay there as long as you could. And you certainly should recognize God and worship Him and praise Him. There was nothing attractive about the wilderness that they were heading out into. It wasn't the land that they had been promised, but it was time to move on. It's time to leave. It's time to, because God had set before them a path and something that they were supposed to do, and it's time for them to do that. I've noticed as I've read God's Word, and particularly the Old Testament, and uh, growing up, I was a New Testament guy. I guess most of us are. We all gravitate toward, toward Christ, and we gravitate toward the redemption story of Christ. But uh, my wife will tell you this. There's something about the Old Testament that's just gripped me. And it's not even, it's been well before Josh started in Exodus. There's something about the redemptive story and the way that God lays out everything in the Old Testament, which is stunning to me and attractive to me. And I love studying it. But one thing I notice as I've observed Israel's story in the Old Testament is that whenever he leads them to a great triumph, there's always a time of commemoration that's followed by a time to move on. Always a time of commemoration 
that's followed by a time to move on. Just three chapters back, Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, whenever the people of Israel were gathered together, they got their livestock, they got their belongings, they got everything that they owned, they gathered in one place, and what did they do before they set out? It says there that Moses spoke to them these words. He says, remember this day. This is Exodus chapter 13, verse 3. Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of this place. And then immediately they turned and left. We see this over and over in the Old Testament. Commemoration followed by moving on. In Joshua chapter 4, the Israelites crossed over the Jordan River in a story that's very similar to what happened in Exodus chapter 14. It says that the the leaders of of the tribes put the uh, Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. And God told them, as soon as the soles of the shoes of the men carrying the Ark of the Covenant touch the waters of the Jordan River, the waters will stand up in a heap and they'll cross over on dry land. And sure enough, in Joshua chapter 3, that's exactly what happened. They put the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, their foot hit the water, and the waters immediately parted, and then they crossed over on dry land. By the way, this was during the rainy season, so it's not like a barren creek. They crossed over during the rainy season. The water stood up and they crossed over. Well, what did they do when they got over there? It says that Moses called the leaders of the tribes of Israel together and told them to gather 12 stones and they built a memorial, a stone memorial for God in Joshua chapter 4 there on the side of the river to commemorate God's mighty work on their behalf. But listen, they didn't stay there. As soon as they had made this monument of commemoration, then they moved on again. That's what God's purpose was for Israel. They had a, God had a greater purpose for them, a greater plan for them, and so they were not to stay where they were. They would continue to move on. They did this. There were other military victories where they had, where they, they set up a monument, and then they worshipped, and then they moved on. And so it should be for you and I. There's a message there for you and I. We cannot live off past victories. If you listen to me, say Amen. I love the mountaintops. I love those experiences when, when God delivers and when God provides and when God assures. I love those times whenever God's moving and doing great things in my family. I love those times whenever uh, it's not even an emotional experience. It's just, I can literally see. I remember there were times when we moved to Chicago and we, we didn't know what we were going to do for money and a check was in the mailbox. People hear about that stuff's real. Those are, those are mountaintop experiences. But, but listen to me, church. There's no assurance in Scripture that you are going to stay on the mountaintop. There's no guarantee that's going to last. And furthermore, you're not meant to stay on the mountaintop. The thing that makes a mountaintop a mountaintop is the valley that's around it sometimes. God assures us that the valley... Is going to take place just as a mountaintop will take place from time to time. And we'll see that. We saw that when we read verses 23 through 27. Team from Ecuador, I look over and I see several of you around the congregation. Many of you will, will recognize Ecuador as a mountaintop experience in your, in your spiritual life. You will recognize this as a time when God used you to be great commission warriors, carriers of His Word to the nations. You're going to be on the mountaintop. I praise God in that. I praise God that you're on the mountaintop. But here's my encouragement to you. Most of you seem to be on this side, so I'll gravitate this way. Listen to me. Here's my encouragement to you. Enjoy the mountaintop. Praise God for the mountaintop. Thank Him for the experience. And then listen to me. Learn what you can from the experience. And then move on. Because God didn't bring you to that mountaintop just to stay there, but to prepare you and to show you things about Himself that He can use that to sanctify you, to grow you, to help you, to get you ready for what's coming next in your life. Because God, every one of us in this room, God has sovereignly planned and devised what your life is going to be like. It's going to include mountaintops, it's going to include valleys. So what you do from the mountaintop experiences, from those wonderful moments, is what can I learn from this to prepare me for what God has in store for me next. And can I tell you something? It may very well be a valley of testing. That's what it was for Israel. Israel literally turned away from the seashore to the wilderness. And within three days, this scripture says they didn't have any water. And within a few days after that, they're grumbling. It doesn't say exactly how many days. I would say it's probably 10 to 14 days total. 
Within 10 to 14 days, Israel was on the mountaintop looking over the seashore. And then they were in a valley of testing. And the Bible says here that they were grumbling. Speaking of this test, this test that God brought them to was a test of water. It was a test of of relying on Him. Of depending on Him to provide for them, right? So they came to... They came three days later. They recognized we don't have any water. There's no streams here for us to drink from. There's nothing here for us. And then a few days later, they traveled on. By then, they were probably parched. By then, they were probably cranky. By then, they were definitely thirsty and needy. And they came to this water. And what they found it? They found it to be bitter. They found it to be nasty. And historians have debated whether these were streams of waters at Mara or whether they were wells. And and most of the wells that are in that region now. If, if you go to them, I read somewhere this week that all of the wells in that region are bitter. They had a real brackish, a real uh, nasty, strong odor, salty taste. And you sort of kind of would think that, right? With the Red Sea being relatively nearby, you'd think that, that if there are wells there, there's a good chance it's going to have nasty water or bitter water in it. And so that's what they found. And this water didn't only taste bad, but it was also probably bad for them. Jennifer and I were laughing this week at the ocean. What happens if I drink this water? Well, you're probably going to get delirious, right? Uh, and, and so, you know, in a similar way, it's probably would, would be bad for them, unhealthy for them if they drank this water. And so, however bad it tasted, the water there was bad enough to make the Israelites forget. Listen to me. That water was bad enough to make the Israelites forget the glory of their deliverance and to begin grumbling. They didn't just come off the mountaintop, friends. They, they sort of kind of crashed off the mountaintop. Everything that they had seen before, they forgot. All the miracles in Egypt, the ten plagues, God's deliverance from Pharaoh, the Red Sea account, the worship song they had just sung not ten to fourteen days ago probably, was all forgotten. And they began to grumble. They were tested. Which brings me to my second point. Not only, number one, we cannot live off past victories. Number two, we must not confuse deliverance with independence. We must not confuse deliverance with independence. Look at Israel's response to this test. Israel's response was telling. It said they grumbled. They raised the complaint. Not to God. They raised the complaint. In this, in this particular passage, they raised the complaint to Moses. And it only took a few days to do that. Instead of crying out to God for help, they cried out to Moses with complaint. And you and I look at this and we say, oh, well, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know that they, they shouldn't do that. They should cry out to God that God had just showed himself to them in miraculous ways. But then we recognize that they're doing just the opposite of what they should do. And I don't know about you, that's a bit of a turnoff to me. That's a bit of a turnoff to me to look at the people of Israel and see, see their response and see what they've done. And, and especially if you recognize that this becomes a pattern for them, right? This becomes a pattern for the people of Israel. Uh, one author I read this week, John Durham, said this. He said, interwoven with these themes of demonstration, provision, and guidance are the themes of Israel's dissatisfaction set forth in the sequence of the story by narratives of bickering, complaining, and rebellion. And sure enough, if you look through the next few chapters of Exodus, and if you flip over to the book of Numbers, it's very obvious to see that this, this pattern of complaining uh, sets in with Israel. In chapter 16, which Josh will start teaching from next week, they didn't have any meat, so they grumbled. In chapter 17, they come to the point where they don't have any water again, and so the Bible says that they quarrel. In Exodus chapter 32, which is, takes place at the end of the Sinai account, Moses has they've come to Sinai in, in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, and Moses is up on the mount receiving the, precept, the precepts and the law and the commandments of God. And while he's up there, and he's taken a long time, he's been up there for a while, the people decide to fashion a golden calf and begin to worship that. They, they, they can't, it's almost like they can't deal with prosperity. They can't deal with God's blessings. They don't know how to respond appropriately. Also, in, the, in Numbers, I mentioned that a minute ago, just, just in my own Bible, and we're not going to read passages, but I mean, even the headings in my Bible says this about Israel. In Numbers chapter 11, it says uh, that the people of Israel complained. In Numbers chapter 12, the heading in my Bible says that the people of Israel murmured. And in Numbers chapter 14, it says that the people of Israel rebelled. They developed a, a, a systematic pattern of things going well 
And instead of responding with gratefulness and thankfulness, they responded with, with not trusting God, not depending on God. It's as if they thought that their deliverance mean that they could do it all on their own. It's as if they thought that their deliverance from, from Egypt and their deliverance from bondage meant that now that they, they had the right and the privilege of doing everything on their own, that they could just make it happen. They didn't really have to depend on God anymore. And this pattern just demonstrates that and illustrates that. It becomes a significant theme for the Israelites. Just when I was looking at this, knew I was going to be on vacation last week, and so I began studying ahead a couple of weeks ago, and I told you a minute ago, it turned me off to read that about the Israelites. To think, man, God's chosen people. Look what He had just done for them. Are you kidding me? How did they respond that way? Went back this weekend after I got back from vacation on Friday and started reading this again. It's as if God held a mirror up in front of my face and said, who are you to judge the Israelites? Troy Harrison. You just like them. Just like them. See, the fact of the matter is, the Bible says that I was a wretched sinner apart from God. The Bible said that there was nothing good about me apart from God. And the Bible says that before I surrendered my life to Christ, before I became a Christ follower, before I trusted in Him by grace through faith to save me, there was no hope for me. There's no hope for me. And yet, in the fullness of time, God called me to Himself and saved me. Help me to understand what Christ had done for me. That He died for me. And by trusting in Him and depending on Him, my iniquity was taken away. I was washed clean. And yet, here am I. Far too often, nothing I would confess to you from the pulpit, but far too often, I'm found like the Israelites. And so are you, probably. If you think about it. God delivered me, and far too many times I don't depend on Him. And God delivered you, and far too many times, if you really think carefully about it, I think you would have to admit that you don't depend on God like you should either. I forget that the trials in the valleys are guaranteed. I forget that these times, I can't stay on the mountaintop, these times of testing are going to happen. I've got to be prepared for those. And like the Israelites, if I'm not, then I'm prone to gripe and to complain and to grumble. And the response of the Israelites mirrors mine more than I'd like to admit. If you listen to this morning, say amen. There's a couple of things I wanted you to remember in this regard. Number one, we must expect bitter pools in a bitter world. We must expect bitter pools in a bitter world. We, we, we live in a sinful world. We live in a world that is wrought with sin and, and, and denial of God and self-reliance. Some of the, the bitter pools that we wander into are bitter pools of our own making. Some of the bitter pools that we wander into are, are times of testing that God would have us to go through so that He can sanctify us and try us and bring us closer to Him. Behind Israel was the conquest at Egypt. In front of Israel was the promise of God. If anybody had an opportunity or a right or, or, or an opportunity to praise God and continue walking with Him, it was the Israelites. And yet in the time of testing, they failed. Behind me is my wretched sin. Behind me is my lost estate. Behind me is who I used to be apart from Christ. Ahead of me is the glory of heaven. Ahead of me is an eternity with Christ. Ahead of me is an opportunity to bow at His feet and worship Him for eternity. And yet in the time of testing, I forget that bitter pools are expected. And my response to Him is too often like the Israelites. The Israelites were presented with this simple test of faith and they failed. Verse 25 even says that they were deliberately tested. Friends, there's going to be a time in your life when you're going to be deliberately tested. What will your response be? Number two, 
Not only must we expect bitter pools in a bitter world, but number two, we must never assume that our deliverance means independence. That was my original point. We must never assume that our deliverance means independence. Just because God delivers you from something doesn't mean that you can cast Him aside and do it on your own. Doesn't mean that you're going to be apart from it. Okay, thank you, God. I appreciate that. It's as if someone changes flat. You know, if someone helps you, you, you got a flat tire on the side of the road and, and, and they come to you and, and help you and they help you fix your flat tire. You know, you're going to say thank you to them. You might pay them a little bit of money for their troubles. They're going to get in their car and they're going to move on. And you're not going to, going to feel like you owe them anything else. Well, it's not that way with God. You're not completely independent of God after He delivers you. Israel was delivered at the Red Sea, yet they were still dependent on God. But their response in Exodus chapter 15 makes it seem as if they didn't realize that. They didn't realize that they needed to be dependent on Him. And listen to me, you will never, ever, ever, ever come to a point in your life where you will not be dependent on God. Never. I think of my friends, I've told you frequently... One of the most meaningful times in mine and Jennifer's life was the time that God had us in Chicago. And uh, I think of my brothers and sisters there. Many of them are Assyrian, which means they're Iraq and Iran. And uh, they're very passionate people. I mean, just like I'm trying to get someone to come here. I'd love someone to come here. I'd love for you to get to meet them. They're just really passionate people. And there are many of those, those, those ladies and gentlemen that I consider believers. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. I have no doubt that they were saved. I have no doubt that, that they've repented of their sins in turn. But listen to me. By their own testimony, they don't depend on God. By their own testimony, though they have been delivered, they don't depend on Him. Jason, what they do, they, they live one crisis to the next. One crisis to the next. One crisis to the next. Their job. It's always this crisis in their job to that crisis in their job. Their marriage. It's this crisis in their marriage to that crisis in their marriage. They go from one to the next. And it's, it's as if in, in ministering there, it's as if the pastor and I would always go in and tell them, what you're doing is you're not depending on God. You depended on God to save you. You depended on God to deliver you. But you're not depending on God to change you. You're not depending on God to keep you. And so they would go from one crisis to the next. There's one gentleman in, in particular. My heart breaks for him today because uh, I, 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 for, for years I, I, and, and over and over and over, I kept trying to help him to understand the God who delivers you is a God who's dependable. My goodness, if you, if you trusted him to save you from your sin, what can you not trust him with? But it was as if he was satisfied with being delivered, did not understand that he needed to stay dependent upon God. And if we're not careful, we'll be the same way. And that shows itself during a time of testing, church. When something happens, when it's not the mountaintop, when it's the valley, and you're just satisfied in deliverance and you're not dependent upon God, you're going to end up just like the people of Israel did right here. You're going to grumble. You're going to complain. You're going to doubt. You're going to quarrel. You're going to turn. You're going to struggle. There may be somebody here who's doing that right now. I I don't know. There's a crisis after crisis after crisis in your life. There's a valley after a valley after a valley in your life. And you're, you're confident that you've been delivered, but you're not trusting God and depending on Him to get you through the valley. You've been too quick to, to grumble and complain. I would ask, are you still dependent on the God who saved you? Or could it be that you've wandered off trying to do it all on your own? Friend, don't wander off trying to do it all on your own. Don't wander off trying to do it all on your own. Moses realized what was happening. Moses realized immediately. He didn't go back at the people of Israel. Moses realized, according to Scripture, that this was bigger than himself. Verse 24, uh, verse 24 says the people grumbled at Moses. Verse 25 says, then he cried out to God. He did what the people of Israel should have done to begin with. Instead of crying and grumbling to God, uh, grumbling to Moses, they should have cried out to God. And so that's what Moses does here for help. And he called upon Yahweh, the same Yahweh who was always present, the same Yahweh who was always in control and, 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 and leading them and was there with a response. And verse 25 talks about this, this tree or this branch. And, uh, you know, sometimes getting into passages of Scripture like this, 
I get off on trying to figure things out. Uh, Mike, I don't know if you ever do this. or I've got to know what was special about that branch. What, what was so neat about that branch? So I dug around a few places, and guess what? I couldn't find what was special about that branch. Um, there, there are some, some trees and some shrubs and some branches that have a certain uh, aroma or some aromatic smell that uh, if you throw it into the water, could cause the water to smell and to taste better. Uh, I found, did find out that there's, uh, there is a, like a uh, bush or a thorn bush that's in Arabic cult- cultures and dry cultures that uh, is sometimes thrown into wells to sweeten the water. That, that's the purpose of that thorn bush is to sweeten the water. Uh, I sort of kind of lean toward the fact that it's just a God performing a miracle to take care of his people. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what the I don't know what that bush was or what it what it what it exactly did to make that water drinkable. But either way, it was God's way of demonstrating to the people of Israel that you should still be dependent on me. I'm still going to take care of you. I didn't just lead you out of Egypt for you to perish in the wilderness. I'm still going to take care of you. Even though you and I may have been delivered from the bondage of sin, brothers and sisters, we're still dependent on Him. We're still dependent on God in every single aspect of our lives. Sometimes it's just good that we have a reminder about that. Amen? My final point, number three, not only can we not live off past victories and we must not mistake deliverance with independence, number three, we should not ignore the necessity of obedience. We should not ignore the necessity of obedience. Look with me at the end of verse 25 and beginning of verse 26. It says, There He, meaning Yahweh, made for them a statute and a regulation, and there He tested them. Verse 26 says, And, and He said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in His sight, and give ear to His commandments, and keep all of His statutes, then I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. For I, Yahweh... And your healer. It's not unusual for God to test His people. Sometimes we get offended by that. Sometimes just saying that makes us turn and, and, and say, why would God test His people? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 says that God allows that to happen sometimes. It says to humble you and to test you in order to know, in order to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep my commandments or not. That's what it happened in Exodus chapter 15. The miracle of the water was connected to a promise totally dependent on Israel's response. Israel only had two ways to respond to what God did. God delivered them. Now that God provided for them, Israel had a response. Either they could uh, receive blessings for their obedience, or they would receive judgment for their disobedience. And all they had to do was go back and look at Egypt. God's warnings to Pharaoh. Pharaoh disobeyed. Pharaoh did not follow. Pharaoh did not, did not do what he was... Uh, what he should have done, and so he was he, he he was judged for that. And what I want us to realize here, and this is going to be very important for the next few weeks as we study through the book of Exodus, is that the the, the story here with those two verses, verses twenty five and twenty six, begins us to turn us toward Sinai. It begins to turn us toward that mountain where Moses would go up and receive the law of God and the commandments of God and the precepts of God, and God. From here to Sinai would test Israel two more times. Josh is going to be preaching over that the next few weeks. Two more times he would test their obedience and they continued to fail. Meaning that they continued to grumble. They continued to be not dependent on God, but dependent on themselves. And God was gracious here. Amen. God provided for them. And God didn't even punish them here. But the giving of the law, which was coming in just, just a few chapters here, was going to solidify his expectations for Israel. There would be a time when disobedience and grumbling and doubting and rebelling and arguing and complaining was going to cost the people of Israel. They could either be blessed or they would be cursed depending on their obedience. Would you agree with me this morning that obedience is a serious thing? How many of your parents? Raise your hand if you're a parent in the room. Just about everybody in here is a parent in the room or... or, or, or I would ask how many of your children, because you could see either side of this coin. Uh, you, you parents, do you expect obedience from your children? Whenever you tell them to do something, do you expect them to obey? Sure. Do they always obey the first time immediately and right as soon as you tell them to do it? Never. <laughs> hardly. Hardly. Ever. 
Jennifer tells me all the time, she's better at this than I am, by the way. She says, Troy, they would obey you immediately if you were to bring the consequences immediately. Meaning, don't tell them obey time after time after time after time. If you bring the consequences immediately, they would obey a lot quicker. I think Israel's a little bit right here. God's giving them grace. God's showing patience with the people of Israel here. And I have a feeling that the people of Israel looked at the fact that they weren't judged immediately. And so they continued in Exodus 16 and 17. Exodus 13, they continued to disobey. They were slow to obey. They were slow to believe. They were slow to trust. But obedience is a serious thing. You and I get that way with God sometimes. If we were really honest, maybe we would look out and say, you know what? I know I'm not completely and totally obeying Scripture and everything that the Word of God says, but nothing seems to be happening. So maybe what I'm doing is not wrong after all. And we have a way of justifying that in our own mind. But we're all going to see later that, that disobedience has serious consequences. And disobedience will cause us to stumble and, and cause us to, to tr- have trouble in a trial. One last thing before we close. I want to look at verse 27 real quick. Let me read that again. Verse 27 says, Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms, and they camped there beside the water. After all that, after all that, they leave the Red Sea, they run out of water, they get the water, but it's bitter. They complain. Moses throws the shrub into the water. The water becomes drinkable again. They drink that. They set back out on their way and they come to a place, Elam, which is, is, uh, had more water and more food and more provisions than they knew what to do with. Friends, there's a lesson there for you and I. Amen? There's a lesson there for you and I. Biblical historians estimate that there was probably between 5 and 10 miles between the original wells of the bitter water and the fresh springs of Elam. They were, they, they were just down the road from the fresh springs. And Israel spent all that time and all that energy trying to depend on their own way of doing things and, and grumbling and complaining about things when just down the road was more than what they needed. Two things that stand out about that to me. Number one, Obviously, instead of being bitter and complaining, we ought to trust God by faith. We never know. Listen, complaining about our circumstances, complaining about the trial that God has sovereignly brought us to. How much time do we waste doing that? How much energy do we waste doing that? And because we're not sovereign and because we're not divine, we don't know what's right around the corner. God may have the great blessing waiting for us right around the corner, but we don't know. Or it may take us a long time to get there because we're trying to do things on our own. If we're saved by faith and He's performed the miracle of regeneration in our lives, then we need to trust Him in every way. Amen? We need to trust Him with everything and in every circumstance. On the mountaintop and in the valley. And then number two, your best may very well be just down the road from your worst. God's very best for you may be just down the road from what you'd consider to be the very worst thing that's going on in your life. We hear stories of missionaries all the time, right? They have so many troubles. They have so many trials. They go through so much. And yet God delivers them from that and delivers them into the greatest blessing of service and ministry that they could ever, ever hope for. Those missionaries have a choice. They can even stay where they are and complain about their circumstances. Or they can plow through the valley by faith. And allow God to use them. And by the way, the mountaintop's not guaranteed on the other side either. I don't want you to think that that's guaranteed either. But circumstances have a way of causing us to look out to ourselves and to look out for ourselves. And if we're a Christian, if you're a Christian and you're listening to my voice today, um, your life's not about you. Your life's not about you. You've been saved for the glory of God. To serve Him. To follow Him. To live for Him. And you can't do that if you're not trusting in Him. Remember what I said about Ronald Reagan at the very beginning. He held tightly to his ideology because he knew it was right. He was convinced. I don't know what his faith was like. I don't know what his personal faith was like. I haven't read much about that in the autobiography. 
So I don't know if that was like one thing. Sure. He was so sure of his ideology that at critical moments in his life, in his career, boy, he just stuck to it. What would happen to you and me? If at critical moments in our life, at critical moments in our faith, what would happen if we just we just stuck to God? What would happen if we just said, I'm going to depend on you. You are the God of my deliverance. You saved me from eternity in hell. You saved me from a godless life. You made me a child of God. You've a guarantee for me an inheritance in heaven. And you've made me a, a, a joint heir with Christ. I'm going to cling to you. I'm going to cling to you in the valley. I'm going to praise you on the mountaintop. You are my God. And I am your servant. And I belong to you. And nothing's going to pry me away from you. The people of Israel came to this moment. And they had a choice. The Red Sea just happened. The promises of God guaranteed. But time after time after time after time when they were tested, their dependence was somewhere else. Where's your dependence today? Where's your dependence today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, recognize this story is meaningful to us in that we are too often like the Israelites. We have relied upon you to deliver us, but yet when it comes to depending on you, we fall short. I've done it in my own life. All of us here, if we were honest, would confess that before you. You know it to be true. Father, so many times we allow our circumstance to dictate the level of our faith. And when we do that, God, we're found to be grumblers and complainers and murmurers. God doesn't have to be that way. Because we can trust in you both to deliver us and to depend on you in every aspect and every circumstance of our life. Father, I pray that you would grant us the grace to realize that. Help us to understand and trust in you in all things and in all times. And Father, if there's one here who doesn't know you, they they cannot have that dependence upon you because they haven't been delivered. But God, I pray that by hearing this story and seeing what you have done for the people of Israel, how you have saved them, I pray that they would recognize that they too can be saved, that they too can be delivered. That they too can come from the darkness into the light. And God, I pray that they would surrender their life to you today. Lord, thank you for our time together. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.